Hey guys, welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepan Kar. Hi, I'm Dr. Ravinder Rindava. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. So today we are talking with Dr. Danielle Pizer to learn more about how we can manage cataract patients before and after surgery. Dr. Pizer currently works as a full-time clinical faculty instructor at the Illinois Eye Institute and serves as the chief of the Alfred and Sarah Rosenblum Center for Vision and Aging. She concentrates in geriatric eye care and vision rehabilitation, and she also has years of experience managing patients alongside ophthalmology by performing cataract preoperative and postoperative examinations. We learned a lot from Dr. Pizer today, and we hope you all do as well. Dr. Pizer, thank you so much for coming onto our podcast today. And for any of our listeners who did not go to ICO or who are not aware of who you are, would you mind please telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Dr. Pizer. I work at the Illinois Eye Institute. I've been there for over 10 years now. Um, and I say the Illinois Eye Institute because that's primarily where I practiced. Um, I was part-time faculty um, at ICO starting right after my residency in low vision and ocular disease. And I went and actually worked at DuPage Medical Group for about five years, which was a ODMD practice. And so I got some real world experience um, doing mostly glasses, contacts, and then finally got to do some post-op work and uh, diabetic eye exams. So then I came back to ICO, worked for the Illinois Institute as a staff optometrist, and then came faculty just this past August, so almost just a year ago. So um, I was never full-time faculty. Thank you. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. actually became chief of the department um, and Rosenblum um, in March of 2018. Um, so that was exciting and scary. And it's been a new experience for me, but really enjoying it and definitely doing something a little bit different in optometry. One, I never thought I'd be in academics. um, And then second, ever thought I'd be in administration. But um, I think that's what's great about optometry and that it has a lot of different avenues that, you know, are available to us and um, that we can go in different directions whenever we want to. So that's been really awesome. And ICO has been really, really great. Um, I'm originally from Ohio State. That's where I did my optometry degree. So um, it's great to be at a different school and have a different family. And it's, Mm. you know, it's been a really great family to have. I know that's why we were really excited to have you, especially because you had a lot of experience working side by side with cataract surgeons and other MDs. So that's why we felt like you were the perfect optometrist to bring onto our podcast today. Well, thank you. So Dr. Pizer, as our first question here, as optometrists, we we typically make the initial recommendation for the type of IOL for the patient when discussing surgery. So in your opinion, what are some important factors to consider when recommending each type of IOL? And I'm talking about like monofocal, toric, multifocal IOLs. So in regards to how I um, choose an IOL, it's right off the bat, how do I want my patient to see? Okay, what's their potential for vision? And then asking them, how do you want to use your vision after cataract surgery? Um, I think that's the most important question. And oftentimes they're like, well, what do you mean? 
what do you mean? How do I want to use my vision? I just want to be able to see. Um, so I asked them, you know, what's the most important vision that you want to see corrected? Um, oftentimes it again, I don't care. I just want to see better. Um, but sometimes people say, oh, I just wish I had better reading vision or I wish I had great distance, or I wish I didn't have to use glasses at all. Um, so when patients tell me, again, they don't want to have glasses at all, I'm more inclined to maybe think about doing a multifocal or educating my patient more on a multifocal option. I base it off of the um, refraction or, you know, the type of refracted error that they're used to having. Um, so with a hyperope, I'm more inclined to go towards Plano, right? Or maybe myopic if they want to be able to read up close. Um, with a myopic patient though, I'm getting nervous about taking away that myopia because that is a big complaint. Even if they're like a minus two or a minus three, you think, oh, I'm just going to give them perfect distance vision. They're going to be so happy. Actually, they hate it because now they're like, wait, what happened? I have to wear glasses for reading now. I never had to do that. So it's for them to understand and educating the patient on what they can expect after surgery. And so I think based off of that, if it's a myope, I might aim to say, hey, do you want just like really great computer vision, you know, or to have something at hand's length? Because oftentimes if you aim them at like a minus one, they can still walk around without glasses, right? To do everyday type of activities, but they still maybe have that intermediate distance or like a dashboard distance or computer distance they might be still feeling okay with. And the other thing is I look at the A-scan. So I don't know, I'm lucky enough that I actually get to run A-scans. I know what the A-scan looks like. So based off of that, I can provide better recommendations. So if I have an A-scan and I know that um, residual cylinder is going to be greater than a you know, minus three quarters of a diopter, um, then I'm most likely saying, hey, you are a candidate for multifocal option. Um, so I will explain that to them. Um, and I, when I do explain a multifocal option, I tell my patients, I can get you out of glasses about 90% of the time. Um, you want to give them that hope that they are going to see improved vision, but that they still might need help either at distance or near or have like some glare issues, things like that, where they might need sunglasses. But I do the same thing when I offer a multifocal contact lens, right? You never say it's perfect. You say, hey, this lens is more expensive, but I'm going to be able to give you good vision 90% of the time. That other time we might need to supplement that with glasses um, or different lighting. That's pretty much how I choose it. I actually talk about monovision, um, monofocals, and that's just because it's a cheap way to do it, um, especially if they were in a contact lens and they were doing monovision. I might just keep them the same. Um, but if I do do a monovision type of fit before cataract surgery to give them the option, especially if their cataracts aren't too dense, you know, with my patients, <laughs> that's not going to happen. All of my patients are like light perception when they come in for cataract surgery. <laughs> but like if I were to work in a private practice, like when I used to work with my surgeon at DuPage Medical Group, we would try monovision with our patients prior to surgery to say, hey, this is what it's going to be like. I throw a contact lens on, see how you do with this for a week or two if that's something that you want to do then you know we'll go forward with that so I think it's just education and setting up mm -hmm. expectations correctly is why how you have to provide education for your patient and choosing the proper IOL yeah it's so true never promise your patient that a hundred percent they will get the vision that they want out of cataract surgery always leave a little bit of room for the expectation that it might not go the way that they're hoping for because yep. when it does happen, 
we don't want them to be as upset as if you promised a hundred percent. Right. Well, especially when they're paying five grand for laser assisted cataract surgery, plus a multifocal and you're giving them, you're saying, Oh, we have this wonderful technology. And then yeah. you're not going to, you're going to be 20, 20, 30, 20, 25, yeah. maybe 20, 20. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah. that's not always a good expectation. I mean, and you have mm-hmm. to think about the retinal disease or other ocular conditions that they have too. Right. So are you going to push a patient that has, a history of poor diabetic control into a multifocal implant. No, because they're going to be pissed if their sugars go out of control or mm-hmm. they start to have some type of complication. Um, you know, so you want to also keep it as easy as possible for you to manage refractive yeah. error after surgery. So if you know a patient is super type A about their vision, probably not going to recommend a multifocal IOL at that time, just because you're going to have to deal with it and you're not going to want to deal with it. So, um. (laughs) and then even aside from IOLs in recent years, light adjustable lenses entered the cataract surgery world in the U S in order to provide patients with a customized refraction. So have you personally encountered any patients using LAL yet? So you guys are way up on your technology because I recently, I read about this maybe years ago and I didn't even mm-hmm. realize it was like out there. Um, so, you know, you guys know where I practice. I yeah. <laughs> just very low income, you know, severe cataracts. Um, so I had to actually go back and look this up again because I couldn't remember how the lens actually worked. Um, yeah. So again, I don't have any patients that work with that. Um, I think it's a really cool idea. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if they've perfected it from like 2017, I think when they first started mm-hmm. coming out to, to, to now. Um, there's a lot of questions that I have in regards to offering this to a patient. Um, I don't even know any of our surgeons that are doing high-end cataract surgery that are mm-hmm. using these lenses in Chicago yet. I guess maybe I'm not as bougie in the cataract (laughs) surgery world, Um, but I know that they actually don't really give the prescription just like we would say, okay, you're going to get a pair of glasses at, you know, 17 days to five Mm -hmm. weeks after surgery, right? So you'll get your glasses then. Instead, they're doing these light pulses to change the lens and accommodate, Um, which I think is really neat. At the same time, I am a little concerned about UV light, um, yeah. you know, and offering that to patients, especially in the aging population, that might have yeah. more of a risk for macular degeneration. Um, also, you know, they say that there's no changes after the certain treatments, but I don't know how guaranteed it is. Um, I didn't yeah. look up to the base, like, of the research. Um, and to pay extra money to get this lens but still have having reading glasses. I don't know how much they've done with multifocals and LAL lenses. So that would be something else I'd be concerned about. Um, But I think it's a cool technology that definitely offers um, a competitive lens, um, which we don't have a lot of competition in IOL. So um, anything new, I think it's always great to push the envelope, right? We always want new technology out there, seeing what we can do, um, what is available to make our patients happy. I mean, I think that's the goal that whenever we get into medicine, what can we do to, you know, make the quality of our life for our patients much better. Yeah. With dry eye syndrome can reduce the accuracy of measurements for cataract surgery and may eventually lead to inaccurate IOL calculations. In your experience, at what stage does dry eye disease um, consider postponing surgery until the ocular surface is optimized? 
So, yeah, I mean, especially with our elderly patients, dry eye is a huge, huge concern, um, specifically with lid disease, right? We, you guys have all been in Rosenblum. You know how bad lids look, sometimes so bad that you have to clean them off in, <laughs> in the exam room, which means we're not going to do cataract surgery for that for a while. Um, so, you know, we worry about infection. Endothomitis is our number one concern when we do cataract surgery. And we also want our patients to be comfortable after surgery. We are cutting the cornea. Increased dryness after cataract surgery is very common. Um, so in regards to IOL calculations, we actually try not to touch the cornea. So what our students are doing or our techs are doing is we're working the patient up by just kind of getting a case history, doing maybe slit lamp really quick to look and see the lens, do refraction, and then we are actually just sending them right to the IOL master or the lens star, which we use. So we get those calculations without touching the cornea. Oftentimes our techs and our students are trained very well to know, hey, let's put an artificial tear in the eye before we start IOL calculations. Um, so that helps, I think, in making it accurate. Um, whenever I start to see severe conjunctival um, dryness or PEE, especially centrally um, or actually around the lid margin, um, I'll try to work around that um, in regards to starting dry eye treatment right then and there. Um, most of our patients are not getting surgery for another two to three weeks after that. So I will start them, you know, maybe on Miro sometime because I know they might have some swelling after surgery, um, if, especially if they have, you know, any signs of fugues or they're older patients or have dense cataracts. So I may start them on Miro before that. Um, artificial tears, ointments. Sometimes I'll start them on an erythromycin or polytrim prior to surgery, um, just to kind of clean up their lids, talking about warm compresses, um, you know, and then using any type of lid scrub um, that's mm -hmm. on the market that they want to use. Um, I would discourage um, surgery or put it off if it was so bad that there's like just clumping around the lashes, tons of scurf, MGD is really severe, um, you know, and they, there's, you know, controversy. Do we put patients on, um, Restasis or Zydra before these, you know, surgeries because again, it's immunosuppressive drug. Um, and do we want to? Is that going to expose our patients to more, you know, infection or not? You know, proper healing. Um, I have not found that to be the case. I typically do keep my patients on Restasis um, or Zydra or Sequa, um, which we just started using as well, to help with the dry eye. Um, just because if the inflammation is there, the inflammation is going to get worse and then cause inflammation throughout the eye. So I've been keeping that on them. I haven't had any patients, you know, have issues with healing or anything like that after using them. Yeah. So kind of going back to the whole dry eye concept. So are there any particular signs or symptoms of dry eye disease that may affect post-operative visual outcomes and thus reduce patient satisfaction after successful cataract surgery? Um, I think MGD is actually probably the, the biggest ocular condition that um, would, you know, increase complications after surgery, um, just because where the wound is, um, you know, oftentimes is where the lid is covering that, you know, that area. Mm -hmm. um, and increased bacteria in that area can definitely lead to endothomitis, you know, even if we're possibly even doing an injection of, you know,
know, an antibiotic. I mean, it still could cause infection of the front surface of the eye, leading to an ulcer or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I think lid disease is something that's overlooked often. So, yeah, I would say MGD is probably the biggest one. Um, mm -hmm. And then fuchs. Um, you know, we really got to make sure we're preparing that cornea um, the best we can and actually communicating with the surgeon. Um, we want to do an endothelial cell count um, to make sure that we don't need to move on to a combined surgery. Um, and then actually what I'll do based off of how severe the fuchs is, as I will um, go ahead and prescribe sodium chloride about four times a day, either starting one day prior to surgery or um, one week or even that day, um, a couple weeks prior to surgery. Um, so that way our corneal swelling isn't bad and then we're not mm -hmm. leading to bolus keratopathy, things like that, which could lead to perforation or um, mm -hmm. eventually needing uh, you know, corneal surgery um, in the future. So luckily you've only had one or two of those that needed to go on to corneal mm -hmm. surgery. Yeah. Um, the other condition is maybe LASIK. Um, I know that's not considered an ocular, you know, mm -hmm. ocular surface disease, but we talk about LASIK a lot with cataract surgery and the outcome after cataract surgery. One, because people are now having LASIK 10, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and they're like, okay, can we get your original case? And they're like, that doctor's even practice anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you're like, okay. So it's taking this wild guess. Um, and, you know, I've had about three or four patients we've had to go in and do IOL exchanges um, just because they were so myopic. Um, they had so much LASIK done um, in regards to how much laser and things like that. So um, that's another condition that we would be cautious about, um, you know, in yeah. preparing the patient for, you know, ocular surface conditions after surgery or that could impact their, um, their surgery or their outcome. Mm -hmm. So once our patient actually experiences cataract surgery, what are some common one-day post-op clinical findings that you typically monitor until the next follow-up visit? So like in other words, what's the highest IOP limit or level of AC inflammation before you intervene? For me, I, you know, I used to say, oh, it's above 30, I'm going to treat in office, and I'll probably treat afterwards. Um, I think the more experience you get with cataract post-ops, I'm lucky enough that I'm, God, I've been practicing with Dr. Dawson now for over seven years, um, that, and I've gotten to do one-day post-ops. I don't think us as optometrists are as privileged to do that, um, so um you know, I've changed my strategy a little bit and probably a little bit more laxed um, because I know things will kind of turn around just with time. Um, I would say, though, it was always 30, treat in office, try to get them down in office after 20 minutes, again, if they're not going down, and then we might have to add Diamox or burp the wound. Otherwise, though, the other direction I've been taking is that if a patient has a higher risk for glaucoma, um, their cups are a little bit larger, um, they have thin corneas, and then they come in, say their pressure's always around 10 or 12, and now they're coming in at like 26, things like that. So my marker is about 10 above normal. Um, so I'll look at their range or their IOP, I'll take their highest number um, that they kind of get repeated, and then I'll say 10 from there is kind of my cutoff. The other thing is people are steroid responders, so that might be an issue that they come off of the medication, and I might want to monitor them every week instead of every, you know, going through a week to three weeks. Um, you know, once they start coming off their PRED, can we start coming off of that um, IOP lowering drop as well? Um, so the other issue that happens with high IOP is actually um, corneal edema. 
So what patients tend to do is they're told to wear this patch home. The problem is when they patch the eye at corneas, uh, after cataract surgery is that they put a pressure patch on. So they actually put tons of packing in the box shield and then stick it on super tight. And so they go home, they forget to put their drops in. So now they have a lot of inflammation. They're coming to us. We have to pull the tape off. Hate that. Um, Every you know, time. The eyebrow off, you know, whatever. So that's never Every good. Time. So um, it's, you know, it's annoying. And then what happens is, so if you think about it, you go to sleep, the eyelid gets, or, you know, the eyelid's covering the eye, cornea naturally swells. Okay, now you had surgery, your eyes permanently shut for 24 hours after you had surgery, you're old, and you had a lot of trauma. That's just like a perfect environment for you to come out and have like grade three to four endothelial folds and microcystic edema. Yeah. So the patient can't see. Um, so oftentimes, you might get a higher pressure because the cornea is so swollen, um, that throws you off. The other thing is if the pressure's high, the cornea steams up, right? So oftentimes what you'll be able to even do, you'll lower the pressure in office. It will come down really fast at like 10, and now the cornea is clear, okay? So you will see that. If that happens pretty quickly, typically I know that mm, we may want to send them home with something, but probably just lowering an office was good enough and to have that eye breathe and actually get the inflammation down because of them not using their steroid, okay? So when they don't use their steroid, the pressure tends to come up because of inflammation. So those cells get trapped in the trabecular meshwork. The other thing is pigment, right? We have, you know, with my patient population, um, people of color, we have a lot of iris pigment um, and that, you know, sometimes the implant um, can bump up against the iris. We're getting that sloughing of the iris. So the pressure's high. If I feel like it's due to that, or they have a lot of inflammation, I may put them on an IOP lowering drop. So it really is patient dependent. You know, in your clinical experience, then not just only for one day post-ops, but even one month or one week or one month, what are some common post-op clinical complications? And then for each one, I guess, aside from higher IOP and corneal edema, what would be your typical methods for successful management of these other types of complications? Um, so... I've been lucky enough that I don't see it like a ton. We usually we can fix them right away. The number one thing is we see rebound inflammation a lot in our um, in our patient population. Even after, even if they're doing really well with their drops, um, if we start to taper them too early, like say you know they we start we see them at their one week, their inflammation's down to like less than grade one cell, we start the taper and then they come back within a couple days um, to the ER, the urgent care service, or back in our chairs and we see rebound inflammation. One, they either stop the drop right away or they didn't understand the taper or patients that we work with just tend to have, you know, more more problems with rebound inflammation. Um, the other complication that we sometimes get with rebound inflammation is even after a month, like we try to taper them off, it doesn't work, it's coming down, and then we take them off again, and we're getting this constant rebound inflammation. So working with Dr. Opitz um, and some UV, uh, uveitis specialists, you know, we send them out for testing to make sure that we don't have any major issues um, systemically, but unilateral uveitis or rebound inflammation is going to make us think more about 
about herpes, right? Um, and because of our older population, I've started asking patients when they have rebound inflammation, have you ever had the chicken pox? Have you ever had the shingle shot? Have you had any of these things? Um, because if they have, you know, some type of virus that's hidden, and we know that oftentimes the herpes virus is dormant until some type of trigger happens, whether it's inflammation or trauma, some type of stress that keeps it going, um, we've been actually starting to put these patients on an antiviral, um, typically not topical, oral, um, to kind of kick it in the butt. Sometimes we'll do topical as well, um, but typically we try just, uh, you know, two weeks to four weeks of treatment orally to help with rebound inflammation. Cystoid macular edema is probably the next biggest one that I see after, you know, one week to a month. Um, if my patient isn't seeing 20-20 at week one, I get a little nervous. Um, oftentimes for our patient population, due to economic reasons, we're actually only giving them PRED and putting them, you know, using a moxie injection for their antibiotic or giving them, you know, Ocuflox or something like that. Um, so we don't typically use Ketorolac or an NSAID unless our patients have diabetes, a history of inflammation, th something like that that could increase um, inflammation inside the eye and especially of the macula. So oftentimes we'll see our patients start developing uh, cystoid macular edema, you know, two, three weeks after surgery, um, and they're not getting any better. So again, with cystoid macular edema, we'll put them on an NSAID. I typically treat my patients for about three months. Um, and then that's kind of my cutoff. If we're not getting any improvement after three months with an NSAID, then I'm sending them out um, to retina. I'm lucky enough now that I don't see endophthalmitis or TAS, um, which is great. Um, and that's just because of the intervention of using um, the Moxie injection or the antibiotic injection with cataract surgery, which I know you guys have questions about. But, um, you know, that has been a huge, huge plus for me. Um, in terms of a Seidel sign, um, I've had a couple and actually our surgeon is pretty good. And he's like, oh, the cornea still looks good. You can kind of press on it. It doesn't do anything. It's not leaking too bad. We'll either throw a bandage contact lens on, um, maybe use atropine or PRED, increase the PRED to see if that helps. But typically it's just because there's a small leak. Um, but I always recommend if you're working with a cataract surgeon to call them whenever there is a Cydel and they'll kind of tell you, hey, just, just see them tomorrow if, you know, give them, you know, the information if the eye's gushing, anything's like that. We could also go back to a pressure patch. And so actually, would you mind sharing with our listeners and with us any interesting case involving a post-op complication that you maybe recently have experienced or in the past and how you manage that situation? Sure. Um, I would say my most interesting post-op complication was a eye stent a cataract surgery um, complication combo. So um, it was right when we first started doing eye stents and I had a patient, he was a ex-Chicago cop um, and he had had his first eye done and had um, eye stents put in, no, no complications, everything went great. We had the second eye done um, and he came in with a hyphema, just a very small one. And so I wasn't too worried. I know that's pretty common when we get like just a micro hyphema with um, an eye stent um, after cataract surgery. And then he called two days later and he had a full eight ball 
um, hyphema, um, which I did not expect because <laughs> I was like, oh, it's fine. It's just not a, you know, not a big deal. Um, so we got, you know, we did the atropine, we got everything down, um, you know, and then we could finally see back there after about a week or two. And then he had a vitreous hemorrhage behind that. So that was really crazy. Um, so at that point it had been like, two weeks out and so we worked with our retinal specialist and he really just said I can't really do anything until the hyphema is all the way gone um, and I have to kind of wait for the bit heme to you know resolve a little bit so I can see back there um, and we ended up finding out that we thought oh it's because the eye stent was placed incorrectly or you know done too roughly um, it's actually because he was on um, Zarelto, which is a, um, a blood thinner um, for blood clots. And so we, he had never come off of it. He forgot to stop taking it. And so he actually was on that high dose for that amount of time. We didn't find out till after I asked him when he had the vitreous hemorrhage, Were you, are you on any blood thinners? And he said, oh yeah, I've had a history of blood clots. I'm like, did you stop taking the Zeralto before the other surgery? He's like, yeah, I didn't take it for like 24 hours prior and 24 hours after the surgery. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so, um, but yeah, that was, I was really curious with that because, you know, typically with an eye stent, we were having such great success and, you know, to have a micro hyphema one day and then an eight ball hyphema the next was like, oh my God, what the heck happened? And then to have a vitreous hemorrhage on top of that. Um, patient ended up getting referred to Dr. Itiara. Um, I never saw him again, not surprised. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but yeah, I got a letter and he's doing fine. His, actually, his vision went back down to 2020. So he was- Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I've had a really, I've had a lot of young cataract surgeries lately. Um, so the most recent one we had this week, which was kind of not, I don't want to say that because it's not cool. Um, but we had had an HIV positive patient um, that came in and had a very dense cataract um, in one eye and a moderate cataract in the other. So he was 28 years old um, and we did cataract surgery. And the first day post-op, he didn't come, he didn't see very well. He had always had this like weird visual field defect, like inferior temporal, um, but never, we couldn't see back there. So we didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. um, we did do a B scan. It did show some, um, you know, vitreous floaters or some opacities. So we thought maybe it's an old bit heme, but he was light perception. So he came in, we got him down to like 2100 the first day with some corneal edema. We thought, okay, that's not bad. Dr. Salazar had seen the patient. He comes in for his one week and he's like, I can't see anything inferior anymore. So I'm like, oh, geez, you know, so we look at this visual field. I'm like, maybe he just didn't notice it because the cataract, you know, that visual field loss that was there. Um, and we ended up dilating him. He, we think, so we had a superior retinal detachment that was, um, we think, from CMV. Um, so... Yeah, so he only one eye, so that's like, wait, does CMV happen? I had to go back and I'm like, I thought CMV happened in both eyes, and it actually doesn't. It actually is more unilateral mm -hmm. with the retinal detachment because mm -hmm. um, we think, oh, it's a systemic condition. Um, so it actually looked old. He had like a, a barrier 
rim of pigment. And I had asked them just to make sure, did you ever have cataract or did you ever have laser surgery in that eye? He's like, nope. So we sent him out. Um, there was no undulation or anything like that. But yeah, we think that it was probably either an old vitreous hemorrhage or neovascularization, uh, you know, yeah. causing a directional retinal detachment. Um, so that was kind of like, a cool case, not for the patient, but yeah. I mean, that ties back into never promising your patients with what yes. they're going to see, especially when they're light perception, mm-hmm. you still or can't even promise that. that you'll see better than that because you don't even know what's back there. And I always tell my patients yeah. that have a dense cataract, I do not know what's going back there. I am going to guarantee that you'll get more light back there. Are you going to get any more vision? I have no mm. idea. Well, you kind of already answered this question, but um, what does a typical drop schedule look like for your patients throughout their first month post-surgery? And to what extent do you communicate with the surgeon if you feel like the drop schedule needs to be adjusted? Yeah, so typically for my patients, because of the patient population I see, low income, um, el- very elderly, often have dementia, live in a nursing home, um, when we weren't using an antibiotic injection, um, we were seeing more endophthalmitis. Um, so when I first started working with Dr. Dawson, I think I saw three endophthalmitis within six months. (laughs) So that was really scary. (laughs) Um, and I was like, okay, either I'm going to get fired because I keep missing these one day, um, (laughs) or Dr. Dawson's going to get in a lot of trouble. Um, or the surgical center is going to get in a lot of trouble because they're not sanitizing properly. Um, so our typical drop schedule now is moxie injection, moxifloxacin injection. Um, and then we do pred four times a day, starting immediately after surgery. And then an NSAID Mm -hmm. if required, um, again, I'll do the NSAID starting one day prior to surgery. If they have a history of macular conditions, um, ERM, severe ERMs, macular degeneration, anything like that, I might start it about a week prior to surgery, um, four times a day if it's a, if it's Ketorolac and continuing one month after surgery. Um, typically right now, um, surgeons, um, if you work in a private practice, um, they might be doing the moxie injection. It is off-label FDA, um, although approved, um, it's an off-label use for um, that injection. So they do have to sign on their, you know, form that they're doing this. Um, but we found really great success within the research shows, you know, the re- risk for endophthalmitis goes down significantly to like 0.3% of risk for endophthalmitis if we do an injection um, with an antibiotic. So it's it's great to do that. Then we do, usually they were doing ProLenza or something like that, starting that one day prior, once a, once a day, and then starting that. And typically what they'll do with ProLenza is that they'll use that for two weeks and then stop the medication. Um, so the research shows that with CME um, that a, it eventually goes away on its own. So you don't really need the NSAID, um, but again, it helps with pain. It does decrease the risk for, you know, cystoid macular edema after surgery. But typically if you're gonna use it, it's best to use it actually up to six weeks because that's when CME will continue, like will mm-hmm. resolve completely, excuse me. So that will resolve completely um, within six weeks by itself. So surgeons are cutting it short for two weeks. Um, and I think maybe because of the pain or because if it does develop, it will resolve on its own. Um, so they aren't using it, but I think it's kind of silly not to use it for at least a month um, after surgery. 
And then we do a prednisone acetate, 1%, again, four, day, four times a day, starting immediately after surgery, continuing for one week. When I taper, um, I've kind of gone back and forth, depending on if the patient had rebound inflammation before, I'll wait till all inflammation is gone um, before I start to taper my medications. So we do a four, three, two, one taper. Um, and we actually do it with the Ketorolac and the PRED. And that's for us a compliance issue. So our patients can't follow instructions. They decide that they're going to taper their Ketorolac and stay on the PRED, or they stop the PRED and taper the Ketorolac. So we just make it easy for them. So that's mostly what our drop schedule looks like. So for dropless cataract surgery, which we did um, when we first started, as we started looking at the research for what we call trimoxy. And trimoxy was moxifloxacin with a dexamethasone type of dexamethasone mm -hmm. or prednisolone um, injection um, together. So works really great. Um, I'll talk about some of the drawbacks based off of the study that I actually did at ICO um, with some of my students. Um, so works really great. Typically patients are really compliant. We see great results. It typically has the same amount of rebound inflammation um, after surgery as drops do in, in the literature. So um, they started doing this, using this drop in Europe, uh, or I'm sorry, they started using this technique in Europe and then you know, showed that with the European population that it was still about 9% um, to 13% go on to develop rebound inflammation. So with our population, when we did our study, we were showing that about 20% of our population was going on to develop um, rebound inflammation two weeks post-cataract surgery. And that was way too high. Um, we don't know if it's surgeon-dependent, my study, or versus just the patient population. Um, we know the African-American population or people of color tend to have an increase um, chance for rebound inflammation due to pigment dispersion um, and causing more inflammation and irritation throughout the trabecular meshwork. So that irritates, um, you know, the eye causing more inflammation inside the eye. So that's one reason we stopped using Trimoxy, but we do use Kenalog now. Um, so we'll do um, just a sub-conj injection of, um, of Kenalog um, just to help with inflammation, and that tends to not increase the pressure. Okay, so that was the other issue we were having with Trimoxy is that pressures were skyrocketing. So again, every patient population is a little bit different, um, and you know you have to take that in consideration and what your surgeon feels comfortable doing and how good your surgeon is. So technology surrounding cataracts is constantly evolving. Are there any new or featured developments within cataract surgery, IO selection, or post-care that catch your attention? Um, so I think right now um, the multifocal toric IOL is something that is, it just kind of starting to come out. Um, some docs are starting to use it. I don't know um, what the success rate really is with that. Again, mm -hmm. I don't do a lot of specialty IOLs, um, but I think that's the coolest technology out there right now, um, especially being someone that has ICLs myself. I was always worried like, oh God, what if I had a high amount of astigmatism? You know, how would I do that? Well, they're coming out with ICLs that are now, you know, torque based as well. Um, mm -hmm. um, the other, you know, technique that a lot of surgeons are using is LR 
LRIs, right? So they're using, um, you know, laser to make small incisions to correct for astigmatism, which I think is really, really cool. Um, and they're doing that oftentimes with a laser assisted cataract surgery. So they'll actually cut the LRIs right there, um, you know, in the cornea before they do cataract surgery. That's when they find that yeah. it's the best time to do it, not afterwards. Um, mm -hmm. So they'll do that when they do the laser assisted to help with um, patients that want a multifocal lens but have mild amount of astigmatism that needs to be corrected. So I always think that that's a cool technology that's coming out. Um, the new sterols for um, eye drops to help um, cure or cataracts. Um, something that's really interesting to me. Again, if I can keep my patients away from surgery, that's what I want to do. Um, mm -hmm. So the sterols for um, you know eliminating cataracts via drop. Pretty neat. I don't know yeah. if it's gonna happen, um, but mm -hmm. I think it's a cool technology to look at. Mm -hmm. um, and again, MIGS and cataract surgery together. Mm -hmm. um, they're making it so easy now that you know most of our regular cataract surgeons are now also becoming glaucoma surgeons, which we need because we don't have any glaucoma surgeons left. Um, nobody wants to practice glaucoma because of the risk, and um, it's a really difficult condition to treat. Um, and the surgical outcomes are so poor. Um, so mm -hmm. it's a hard, hard department or career to go into. Um, so, you know, if we can get more of our normal cataract surgeons to be performing MIGs, um, especially eye stents, um, eye stents have been a real great success for a lot of our, you know, mild to moderate cataract um, or mild to moderate glaucoma patients that have cataracts. So what's the mechanism behind these like sterile eye drops? Cause I read, I briefly read that they're developing eye drops to eliminate cataract development or heal cataracts but i i don't know a lot about it i don't really either i'm right like so it's like yeah. supposed the sterile is supposed to help with the crystallization like or decrystallizing the lens so it's supposed mm -hmm. to help kind of remove that crystallization that the cataract has caused i i really don't know and they don't tell you a little a lot about it because i don't think that they're really sure how it works yeah um, but there's <laughs> yeah. some type of you know i'm sure if you ask like a biochemist they could probably break it down for you but yeah uh, i am not one of those so yeah i think it's some type of the sterile for some reason breaks down the opacification mm. of the lens but the thing is, like, how much are we penetrating through the cornea to yeah. actually get there? Yeah, right? to break that enough. down. What's the yeah. factor that's getting it back there or the carrier? Um, you know, to not damage the cornea, first of all, um, yeah. you know, to be strong enough to break this down. So I think there's still a lot of research, but I think it's a cool, cool way to go. Um, and then I did quickly want to mention another cool development that I noticed in the news, and I was wondering if you knew anything about it. Um, there's a new development that's still in the works. It's by Omega Ophthalmics. And the company is creating an artificial capsule that holds IOLs, augmented reality chips, and um, is available for medication delivery. So before this podcast, have you heard of this company? And if so, what are your thoughts? You know, I didn't hear about this company because of the patient population I work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. But after I got your um, questions that you're yeah. going to ask me, I was like, this is amazing. So yeah. you know, with our patient population and how many issues we've had with trauma or poor capsules, right? Like, so we get a dropped lens or a really dense cataract, like to have an artificial, like, a capsule that would be awesome you know yeah. like we would have to, we could eliminate anterior chamber iols which we know yeah. 
don't always work great for patients. We have more complications than good outcomes. Um, so yeah, I mean, and if they could like these microchips could help with low vision. I was thinking about yeah. that. That would be really cool. Um, and then drug delivery for, you mm -hmm. know, glaucoma. How cool would that be? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, cataract surgery is an area of optometry and ophthalmology that really hasn't been touched that much um, because, you know, the IOLs work. So everyone's just kept it the same way. And then some people tr try to tweak the IOLs or the surgery just to make it better. But no one has really had an innovative, you know, method of doing cataract surgery in a whole nother way. So I thought it was really cool. It's really a 3D mechanism, which I thought was yeah. really cool. Like we just think of, you know, this one area coming here, one coming here. Yeah. We don't think about the movement kind of coming back yeah. and forth, which mm -hmm. would just be a cool axis to kind of move the whole lens around and how many yeah. things you can do with it. It almost looks like an inflatable like kiddie pool <laughs> with the, like, the three rings. Like it's, it's just really cute. It, it is. It looks just like a little flotation device. Yeah. Implant. Yeah. Yeah. So. So Dr. Pizer, as our last question, what advice would you give to new grad ODs to begin managing cataract post-op patients? So I think the number one advice that I would give to managing um, cataract post-ops, which is so fun, it's so cool to be able to do something different during the day instead of one or two, let me fit you in. I mean, which cataract, like, Contact lenses are awesome. Like you can do a lot of fun stuff and like treating glaucoma, but um, cataract post-ops are fun. They're typically pretty easy to do, but if you're going to do cataract consults and cataract um, post-ops is to find an awesome surgeon. Um, and don't be afraid to interview a bunch of different surgeons um, and interview them, right? You're liable if you're going to work with a surgeon. Um, so interview your surgeons, make sure they're friendly, make sure they're available. Like Dr. Dawson is the friendliest biggest teddy bear in the whole world. And I can call him at any second. He'll come out of an exam with a patient to talk to me. Um, you know, he's there if I text him on a weekend, I have a question. I mean, the availability that he has for me makes me feel comfortable in treating his post-ops and doing his pre-ops. Um, so having that availability, having a comfort level with your surgeon and knowing that he's a good surgeon, jump in you know, try to see if you can get into surgery with them, what they're doing, how they're managing, what their techniques are, what technologies are they, you know, using. The other thing is if you are going to work with a cataract surgeon, make sure you have a contract, okay? Um, so you're going to want to make sure what, how are you going to get paid for your visits, right? How are you going to get paid for your work? Um, you either have to set up a contract regarding, um, are you going to be a part of the surgical process? So are you going to see them for their, you know, non-charged visits, which means you need to get a cut of the surgery, or are you going to charge the patient when they come for your, their post-ops? Okay, so and get in and see surgery. If you haven't been able to see it, go in and see it. Just to learn what the patient goes through from start to finish is going to help you educate the patient on what they can expect during surgery. So mm -hmm. um, especially if you're going to work with a specific surgeon. Yeah. Definitely. I think glaucoma and cataract surgery is something that will never go away. So that's, you know, that's definitely important areas of optometry. Yeah. It's always going to be there. Yep. And these surgeons are going to dwindle and they're not, yeah. um, they are not going to want to do these visits. They're going to want to just mm -hmm. do surgery because that's where they're going to make the money. But yeah, Dr. Pizer, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. I mean, we are so happy to have seen you after such a long time. 
you haven't changed one bit. So thank you. Thank, <laughs> thank you so much again. I think we learned a lot. Hopefully our listeners learned a lot. Um, you know, for any of our listeners who heard this podcast and is really interested in learning more about cataract surgery or co-management, um, are there any references or resources that you would recommend for ourselves and the listeners to either reach out to you or to learn more about, you know, cataract surgical co-management? Right. I think, um, you know, the American Academy of Ophthalmology, um, their website is awesome. I always go there as much as possible to find any ways that we should be co-managing with ophthalmologists. I try to stay on top of, you know, their newsletter and things like that with cataract surgery and um, upcoming, you know, techniques and technologies um, and treatments and management. So mm -hmm. that's one resource I use quite a bit. Um, there's ASCAR, which is also another um, ophthalmology, you know, where they do lenses, cataract surgery, and refractive surgery. That's a great, um, you know, resource as well. Um, so that's a great way to find information. But yeah, you can always reach out to me to dpizer at ico.edu. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email and hopefully I can help you guys with answering any further questions that you might have about cataract co-management. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Thank you. Such a pleasure. And thank you so much for having me on. I'm so proud of all of you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for listening to Four Eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at Four Eyes Optum for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then, stay tuned. Stay tuned.